You're listening to a podcast from Jubilee Church, Farnham. To find out more, visit www.jubilee.church. Praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciple. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive others, everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Hi, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his persistence and boldness, because of his constantly persistent importunity, because of his shameless boldness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Amen. Thank you, King. Wonderful. Great story as well. Uh, I must warn you though, King, if my wife ever tries to give you a, a letter about giving kids, our kids sweeties every single Sunday, it might be a slightly different letter. <laughs> but um, bless you all the same. It all began with Jesus praying. This new section of Luke that we get into Luke wants us to know that it started with Jesus praying. It's not even where he prayed that was important. Luke simply records it as in a certain place. But what he wants us to know is that Jesus prayed. He also recorded that his disciples noticed this about Jesus. They noticed that he was praying. So much so that his disciples turned to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And right there, Luke puts an interesting bit of context into the story. See, the disciples asked Jesus to teach, how to teach, to teach them how to pray, just as John had taught his disciples how to pray. You see, it was standard practice for disciples in different schools to differentiate themselves from one another. 
People knew John's disciples because what they did, and in this instance, how they prayed. It marked them out. And in the same way, Jesus' disciples made their request, teach us how to pray. The question behind the question really was, how do the followers of Jesus, how do the disciples of Jesus pray? And this is one of the reasons why the Lord's Prayer is just so important. It not only gives us a framework for prayer, but by its very essence, its nature, and as we pray the words and pray the structure, it marks us out as his disciples. It's part of the very fabric of this new community of Jesus followers who are taught to pray to God their Father. It's about community formation as well as personal prayer. You see, it helps us create a worldview that is centered on our gracious God, that is centered on dependence on Him, that is centered on imitation of God. And that's why it's so much more than words to be memorized and prayed out without even thinking. It forms us in to the very people of God. So as we come to the Lord's Prayer in Luke, it's also good to notice and note that the version that we have in Luke is different to the version that we have in Matthew, which is the one we probably use more commonly in worship times. In both instances, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, they are significantly similar with differences, though. The Gospel of Luke is shorter, it's more concise. It doesn't have certain parts. And scholars have debated this for many years, and you can go and read about that if if it so interests you. And without getting distracted by the detail this morning, I would offer a suggestion that Jesus taught his disciples to pray on at least two occasions. (laughs) The one in Matthew is during the Sermon on the Mount. And the one we read here in Luke is on his journey to Jerusalem. And rather than this causing a difficulty for us, perhaps the two versions encourage us to use them, not in a rigid sense, but more as a pattern for prayer. Anyone else that wants to just jump in there? That's fine. We're we're all good with that. The author and biblical scholar Philip Ryken says this about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a model, not a mantra. The important thing is not using the exact words that Jesus uttered, although there's nothing wrong with that, but following the same structure and incorporating the same themes into our own personal life. You see, we're so used to praying to God as Father that we can miss how radical this would have been for the disciples at the time when Jesus said, when you pray, Father. You see, the Israelites did not address God in personal terms. In the Old Testament, yes, the Lord is stated as the Father of Israel, the Father of the nation, but it's very, very seldom that he is addressed in directly personal terms, the way that Jesus is encouraging us and instructing us to do so. See, the Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, God gives us the right to become the children of God. John 1 verse 12. 
then to help us really understand that we are the children of God, he sends his Holy Spirit, and part of the Spirit's work is to help us to pray as children to our Father. The Scripture says, and Sean has read it this morning, you've received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. With the help of the Spirit and through the Son, we pray to God as our Father, coming as loving sons and daughters. And so have you learned to call God your Father? You see, this is hard for some people to do, especially hard when their fathers have done them harm. How does a person come to experience and learn about God as Father? What about those who never knew a father? Fortunately, we don't know God as Father by looking at our earthly fathers, although we can catch glimpses of it in the best of fathers. Nor do we know God as Father through our family experience, although in that it shapes us in immense and in significant ways. But even with those influences coming down and shaping us, we actually come to the Scriptures to find out that God is our Father. He has revealed Himself as so. There we learn that He is the ideal Father who cares for His children, who loves them, who listens to them, who understands them, who knows their needs and what is best for them, and loves each one of us with an everlasting love. He knows what is truly best for us. And we don't need to look for models, although they may give us a glimpse, and we praise God when they do. But when we don't have those models in our life and in our experience, we can still come to the Scriptures and know God as Father, as the perfect Father, as the ideal Father, and the one who is revealed as Father in His living Word. And so the first petition of the Lord's Prayer in Luke is God's name to be hallowed. You see, God's name is much more than a title. In biblical usage, the name of God represents all there is about God. When King David in the, in the Psalms, in Psalm 20 verse 7, says, we trust in the name of the Lord, he's not trusting in a particular combination of Hebrew letters. He's trusting in the very nature and essence of who God is. God's name represents who God is. And so when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, which means made holy, we are acknowledging his purity and holiness. We are declaring that his character is removed and set apart from sin, that his attributes are absolute in their perfection. We are also in that praying for him to display his holiness. We are certainly not praying that he become holy as if in some way he could become more holy than he already is. It's impossible. He is perfect, perfect. He is perfect in that. But what we are saying is when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, Lord, let yourself, make yourself known as holy in the earth amongst us. 
But how does this happen? How is God to be known in all his holiness on the earth? And I think one way this happens is to pray and ask that our lives in some way display his holiness. This means being careful with his name. Not using it casually. It means listening to his word and living accordingly. It means worshipping him as the one and only God. So when we pray, begin by honouring God's holy name. And after praying for God's reputation, we then move to pray for his rule. Your kingdom come, in verse 2. See, Jesus had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom from the very beginning of his public ministry. And now, in the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches his disciples to pray for its coming. And you see, we pray for his kingdom to come first in our own lives. That God would rule in our hearts by faith and we would live a life of faith unto him. We pray it also for our families, asking that our homes would be palaces of the kingdom. And that in our daily routines, his rule would be honoured in our homes. We pray this for our churches. Asking God to conform our lives and our relationships to the gospel. We pray, of course, for our city, asking that our communities become a place where strangers become neighbours, where the poor are defended, where the weak are protected, where businesses prosper and the arts flourish to the glory of God. We pray also for our nation, asking that truth and sacrifice would prevail over selfishness and greed. And also we pray for our world, that one day soon, Jesus would come and set everything right. See, once we've prayed then for his holiness and for his kingdom to come, we are called to pray for ourselves and our own needs. We're called to pray for daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection. First, we're called to pray for daily bread. And this teaches us to live day by day. And if you're interested, the scholars also jump up and down around this word. That's probably quite flippant. I don't mean that. But there's big arguments around whether it means bread for today or bread for tomorrow. And then it means, that does that mean then the bread of the future kingdom comes? And so there's a whole debate that goes on there. But I think, putting that aside for one minute, what we can clearly grab from it is that it teaches us to be dependent on God each and every day for our needs. By teaching us to pray this way, Jesus is calling us to daily, ongoing dependence on our Father in heaven. You see, we often have an inclination to rely on ourselves for our daily needs. And thus we take what God gives us for granted. But you see, even the food that we buy with the money that we earn is a gift from God. The only reason we have daily bread is that God is good and faithful in providing it. And to make sure that we remember this, to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of thinking, this is all coming out of my pay packet. 
And it is in one sense, but you know what I mean. Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. Reminds us that way. And ordinarily, yes, of course, he answers it through the means that we, he has given us. Through our diligent labours. But even when we buy the bread, it's God who puts it on the table. Our Father cares for our earthly needs. And so then when we have asked for our daily bread, we've asked for that daily provision, we also then ask and seek his daily pardon. And this is how we come to God, asking for forgiveness. Not being confident of our own performance, but asking for his mercy and grace. See, just as we need daily bread, we also need daily pardon. As Martin Luther frequently and famously said, the Christian life, the whole of Christian life, is one of repentance. And as we see it also in the Gospel of Matthew, when the Lord's Prayer is recorded there, Luke makes a connection between receiving forgiveness and the forgiveness we offer. In Luke, 4, it's, uh, Luke 11, 4, it says this, Forgive us our sins... For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And we need to be careful here because the, con it, the connection that can come up is that there's almost a condition. There's almost, if we think about it the slightly wrong way, interpret it the wrong way, there'd be a, a condition that God's forgiveness is dependent on our forgiveness. But it's not so much a condition rather than an assertion. And what I mean by that is that forgiven people forgive. We forgive people their sin against us because we have been forgiven our sins. And God has mercy for sinners, praise God. He's willing to cancel our debt if only we come to Him in faith and repentance. And one of the strongest proofs that we have received that forgiveness and we're living out in the good of that forgiveness is that we do forgive those who have harmed us or sinned against us in some way. The children of God forgive their debtors. And even in that, even by forgiving our debts, we show off, we display to the world our familiar resemblance to the Lord, our God. So my question to you this morning is, who is your debtor? What person has done you wrong? You see, if we are sincere in praying the Lord's Prayer, even if it's a journey, even if it's a battle, we must be willing to offer forgiveness to others because we have been forgiven. You see, believers are not simply objects of forgiveness. They are conduits of forgiveness, extending to others what God in grace has freely extended to them. And so as we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we reflect on that, we think about those who have sinned against us. We need to ask ourselves, have we forgiven? So we confess our sins whenever we sin, but it would be better not to sin at all. 
Therefore, the Lord's Prayer ends with a request that God lead us not into temptation. See, this does not imply ever that God is the one that is tempting us. The Bible warns us never to say such things. In James 1 verse 13, it says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. You see, when we are tempted, it is through the allure of our own sin and sinful desire in that moment. But God is able to protect us in that time of temptation and even to keep us away from a particular temptation altogether. And that's what we're asking when we pray the Lord's Prayer. You see, the Bible teaches that when we are tempted, God always provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And it also teaches that God can use our trials and the trials of our temptation for our spiritual good. James 1 verse 2 and 3. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we come to this part here, we are acknowledging our weaknesses. We're acknowledging where our temptations are. But then we're praying, Lord God, lead us not into temptation. Lead us away. So having given his disciples the basic content of their prayers, Jesus proceeded to show them how boldly they should ask for what they need and how generously their father would answer. And Jesus did this by telling them a story. I'll read it again for you, Luke 11, verse 5 to 8. Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is shut now. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, I was very grateful to King that the, he added some extra meanings there. It could be impudence. If you've got the NIV, it might be a sort of bold, uh, boldly audacious, I think it is, shamelessly audacious. Because of that, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You see, the story is meant to be absurd. Jesus often did this. And to see the absurdity of it, we need to know a bit of the cultural context. See, in biblical times, hospitality was a sacred duty. When a guest arrived, especially a friend... They probably traveled some way, and traveling at that time was difficult, not very many reliable inns, and when they arrived, they probably had traveled a long way at the end of the time, in this case, close to midnight. They're hungry. And we needed to put a meal on the table. And bread was so important. Bread wasn't just something to eat. It was like the knife and the fork of the time. You dipped it and you soaked it up and you scooped it in. And so this guy in the parable really has a bit of a problem here. He's in a bit of a bind. He has no bread. So when the friend's, man's friend arrived at midnight, he found himself unable to meet these demands of hospitality that were relevant and contextual at the time. So there's only one thing to do. He doesn't have any bread, so he goes and knocks on the guy next door. And under ordinary circumstances, he would not have done this. But his friend has arrived. He's got this obligation to provide. And so what is he going to do? He goes and knocks 
and takes action so that he can meet the demands of biblical hospitality. And this actually reminds me a little bit of the story of Winnie the Pooh, when Winnie went visiting and Rabbit, not wanting to be bothered, pretended not to be at home. When Pooh saw Rabbit's hole, he wondered about stopping by for a little snack. So he bent down and he called out, Is anybody at home? And there was a sudden scuffling inside the, no- inside the hole. And there was a bit of a noise and then there was silence. What I said, is anybody at home? Called out Pooh very loudly. No, <laughs> said a voice. And then added, you needn't shout so loud. I heard you quite well the first time. <laughs> Bother, said Pooh. Isn't there anybody here at all? And Rabbit replied, nobody. And much the same thing happens in this parable, doesn't it? His neighbour was already in bed, his family were sleeping, it's just a one-bed cottage or one-room cottage, you're all in bed, in beds together. Just about the last thing this man wanted to do was get up at that hour and help his friend. So the neighbour refused him. Not only did he refuse him, he said no in four different ways. It was a quadruple refusal. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's a fairly strong response. Midnight. But the neighbor kept on knocking. His hospitality was at stake. So he would not take no for an answer. Eventually, the man in bed realized to his annoyance and irritation that it's going to be quicker and easier to get up, not because of his love for the man, not because of even his friendship, but because he wants to get back to sleep, that he'll get up and give him what he needs. He did it because his neighbor had the audacity to come at midnight and keep asking until he got what he wanted. And we should come to God with the same kind of bold perseverance when we pray. Not timidly dropping God hints about what we need. Oh, it'd be nice for this, or Lord, if you happen, maybe. But we need to boldly, shamelessly present our requests before God and then continue to pray about them until we get an answer. Equally, we need to be careful here not to press the details of the parable too far because if we do, we'll make some serious errors. Jesus is not saying that God is annoyed when you turn up at midnight. He is not saying that he has to be cajoled into answering. And neither that we should never take no for an answer. In fact, God is not like the man in bed at all. Jesus is making a contrast. But what he's saying is that even if the surliest neighbor who would otherwise not want to get up, if he will get up because of the perseverance and the audacity of knocking at midnight, how much more will God, our Father who loves us, give us what he has promised to give us? 
See, prayer is not a way of getting God to do what we want him to do. Or of persuading him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Good luck with that. But prayer is an audaciously bold request for God to do what he promised. So when we ask God to hallow his name, to establish his kingdom, to give us bread, to forgive our sins, to save us from temptation, we do it with a shameless, persistent and utter boldness. Leon Morris, an author, says the lesson of this parable is... We must not play at prayer, but must show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into an answer. The whole context of the parable shows that he is eager and willing to give. But if, listen to this, challenging in itself, but if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. Ouch. To help us pray this way, to help us pray and keep praying, Jesus applied the parable with some of the most encouraging words in the Bible. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, as we've seen, as we've been going through this parable, this is more about how to pray than how God answers. But in the application of the parable, both his part and our part are clearly in view. You see, our duty is to seek, to, to ask, to seek, and to knock. And doesn't there seem to be a progression even in the use of those words? Is it, it's one thing to ask, but to seek maybe requires a higher level of commitment. To seek is to pursue what is us. Then to knock is to pound at the very door to get the answer. And so these three words, these three verbs, doing words, there seems to be a progression of intent to pursue what you're after and what your request is. What's even more important is that, getting slightly technical and grammar, they're in the continuous tense. So it's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. See, God is a generous Father who loves to give us what we truly need. And when we have the audacity to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray, God has promised to hear us. And in the dialogue of prayer, we're pursuing God for something that He is longing to give. Do we think that way? In verses... In these verses, Jesus assures us that God will answer. He assures us. And he doesn't do it once, he doesn't do it twice, he doesn't do it three times. He assures us six times. Three times in verse 9, three times in verse 10. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Our asking and our seeking and our knocking will not be in vain. God will give, God will reveal, God will open. He goes on further and says, for everyone who asks, receives. It's like he's repeating the same thing again. Jesus repeats himself to give us extra assurance that our prayers will be answered. But of course, 
Again, a word of caution. This passage of Scripture is not saying that God's going to give us everything that we ever want. In the context, it's talking about the things that we have prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection. And as we'll discover when we get to verse 13, he's talking most specifically about the spiritual blessings that God gives to every believer in Jesus Christ. If we ask for these things, we will receive them. But the promises there in verse 9 and 10, as I was preparing, they seem so immense. They seem so big. It seems like a blank canvas with no restrictions that you're then wondering, is this really possible? So to assure us that little bit further, to give us the confidence that Jesus wants to have us to have in God our Father, he gives two little parables from family life. He says, what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? See, it's again an absurd question. What kind of father would give his son a snake instead of a fish? A man who did such a thing would be a fiend and not a father. And of course there is, sadly, men such as this in our world. But the point still stands. No ordinary father would be so cruel to give his son something dangerous when he asks for something good. Having made this point, then Jesus moves from our situation to God's situation. And he says, if you, and he uses quite strong language, he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God the Father give you what you ask? He wants us to have that confidence. He wants us to approach the Father boldly and with audacity. There's a story that told of a man who approached Alexander the Great for a financial need. The famous conqueror referred the man to his royal treasurer and said, give him whatever he needs. Within about five minutes, the royal treasurer is running into the throne room saying to Alexander, there must be something wrong. He's asked for an absolute vast amount of money. You've got this wrong. And the response was, he has treated me as a king in asking, and so I shall be as a king to him in giving. Our Father God loves to be a king in giving to us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8 verse 32. God has given us a generous invitation offering everything we need in Jesus Christ. The question is whether we will come to him and ask for what we need, seeking and knocking. And then the last thing, the last thing to notice as I bring this to a close, is the surprising twist at the end of the story. Jesus had been teaching his disciples how to pray. He's given them the model and the framework on how to pray. Pray for our daily needs, pray for our daily forgiveness, pray for our daily protection. He then gave them stories to encourage them, say, it's not just what we pray, but also how we pray. And as we pray, we want to keep 
on seeking and asking and knocking. And there, the surprise comes. Because what exactly do the Scriptures say God will do? In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, it says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It's just like, a, it's just like left field. Oh, hang on, we haven't been talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is nowhere mentioned in the Lord's Prayer explicitly or in any of the instructions in the parables that Jesus has just given. And suddenly, the end of the whole passage is that the Lord will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And to some, this might seem even a disappointment. We were talking about earthly needs. Even the parables that you just taught us, Jesus, were about earthly needs. And then we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But rather than a disappointment, it is in fact the climax of the whole passage. The Son promising that the Father will give us the Spirit of all the gifts that God could possibly give us. This is the best. None is greater than the gift of God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the greatest gift because He is God. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we worship them. He is to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. And so in promising to give us the Holy Spirit, God is promising to give Himself to come and live inside of us. And some may well ask, well, what will the Spirit do? If this is such a gift, what will He do? He will reveal the truth of God through the teaching of Scripture, which the Spirit inspired first. He will convict us of sin, giving us the gift of repentance. He will persuade us of the truth of the gospel, working in us the gift of faith. By faith, He will unite us to Jesus Christ so that through the Spirit we will receive the blessings of salvation. And that's not it. That's, that's just the beginning. He wins us the victory over sin. He equips us with gifts for ministry. The Spirit will grow in us the fruits of godliness. The Spirit will assure us that we are the children of God. And one day, the Spirit will raise us as He raised Jesus and transform us and give us new bodies and change us into His glory. Hallelujah. Have you ever asked the Father for the gift of the Spirit? One man who made this request was John Newton, the famous and infamous slave trader who by the grace of God became a great preacher and hymn writer. Newton was captain of the Greyhound when the ship was caught in a violent storm. You've probably heard the story before. In the middle of the night, the upper timbers of the ship were shattered and water gushed into Newton's cabin. As he clambered out onto the top deck, he ran, came past one of his fellow crewmen and was, this person was swept overboard and perished. The captain eventually took the helm of the ship and in the desperate hours that followed, as he reflected on his life and the life that he had wasted without God, he thought to himself, there was never nor could be such a sinner as myself. He concluded that his sins were too great to be forgiven. 
How could a wretched sinner like John Newton ever find grace? And as he held on for dear life, Newton began to reason that the best way was to ask for the power of the Spirit and then to live the truth of the gospel. And he said later that he was influenced by reading Luke 11 verse 13, where God promised to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. When Newton asked for the Spirit, God gave him the promise and gave him the greatest gift of all, saving that wretched sinner by his amazing grace and the power of the Spirit. And God is ready and willing to do that for you. Because this is a request that Jesus has guaranteed that God will answer. All we have to do is ask. Can I get the band up? I just need your hand up there. Okay, that's fine. I don't need that. You don't need that? Um, I just want to say that I'm stepping out in spirit to say thank you. Thank you to my church leaders who have supported me. Thank you to you who have supported me in prayer. And thank you to God because I've knocked on his door and earnestly asked each time I pray for him, more time, Lord, by your will, more time. Not to be healed, though others have asked for me. Um, not to refuse to go when God wants me, he'll call me. But for now, Lord, more time. And in the face of the fact that I've been asking this for nearly a decade now, and in the face of the fact that, again, my treatment was refused this week, and all through this chemotherapy, I'm growing weaker and weaker, I am still praying earnestly to God, more time, God, and I know that he's answering this prayer. So I say to all of you, Whatever it is you need, speak and ask in prayer to our Father. He is listening and he will grant it. Amen. 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 Shall we stand? Let's stand. I'll pray and then we're going to finish with one song of worship and then we'll get the kids. Lord, thank you for your precious living word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for our gracious Father, and I pray now as we conclude, Lord, with a song of worship, that you do minister to our hearts, that you encourage people. Thank you for Joe, Lord, and her testimony that strengthens and encourages us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, work all of those good gifts in our lives as we've just closed on. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.